Within living memory of Alexander the Great, a vast, powerful and extraordinary empire rose up in northern India. Forged by the strength, intelligence and philosophy of one man, who in one lifetime went from warlord to monk, from outcast to emperor. His ideas brought a new religion, Buddhism, to full bloom in faraway places, and he's still commemorated in the flag of India. The empire of Ashoka the Great left a mark on all of southern Asia. H.G. Wells, in his famous Outline of History, wrote about this man. Amidst the tens of thousands of names of monarchs that crowd the columns of history, their majesties and graciousnesses and serenities and royal highnesses and the like, the name of Ashoka shines and shines, almost alone, a star. Now that's high praise for someone who many people in the world probably don't know as much about as they do, for example, Alexander or Augustus or Charlemagne or any of those great rulers. And Ashoka was the probably the most important Mauryan emperor of India at a time roughly a hundred or so years after Alexander. So in a period of history where you know, that part of the world was developing maybe faster than some parts of the Western world. And certainly there were belief systems starting to come into play that have been influential throughout history from that point onward. His name was Ashoka the Great. That's what they call him. And certainly someone who I was very, very pleased to discover had an incredible story. Yeah, and, and that's what I love so much about history. I think it was in the 1800s, mid-1800s, that, that they started finding out about Ashoka because previous to this, hmm. there was nothing really told about him. And he controlled swathes of, of territory. Huge territory. From modern-day Iran and the whole Indian subcontinent. And probably one of the things that makes this guy so compelling, and I do agree with you that this is the best thing about history, is you, you know, we've, we've talked about so many people in every episode of this series from, from the first one. But when you discover someone new or you discover someone whose name you might have heard in passing, but you actually get into their story, what's amazing about this guy is this incredible balance between pacifism and war and the fact that he was both this incredible warrior and this great conqueror and this powerful, mighty emperor and also this pacifist, this holy man, this converter, this person who brought a new way of thinking at a time where really life was pretty miserable and violent for most people on yeah, planet Yeah, it was Earth. very violent. And yeah. if you had to think the amount of people that he, that he converted is maybe a strong word, but on the Buddhist side, uh, to bring that across to, mm. to a whole massive nation or a whole lot of different smaller nations together. Well, we'll talk about the, the spread of Buddhism a little bit later, but let's just start at the beginning of his story. He wasn't the eldest son of the emperor Bindusara, but he, he was, I think, the second or the third son. And, you know, his, his elder brother was set to inherit things, but his father sent him at a young age to go and quell a rebellion. And off he went. Expectations were not high. The rebellion was quite strong. And he just took them down. And this was in his teens, maybe his early 20s. And he just emerged as this guy who had a knack for military uh, maneuvers, for, for training, for sophisticated deployment of, you know, the right kind of 
infantry and and the right sort of fighting men and elephants and all the rest of it. Remember, this is only, as I said earlier, within living memory of Alexander yeah. when you know he had already disrupted that part of the subcontinent mm-hmm. by his fights at the Hydaspes River and all the rest of it with Porus. So okay. Alexander's enemy at the Battle of the Hydaspes was was Porus, Emperor Porus, or the or the the um, what was he? He was kind of a, a he was a mid-sized ruler in that mm-hmm. area. But when Alexander had come in there and disrupted things, that was where that whole northwestern area of of India was changed forever. Mm. And it's so interesting as you as we talk at Ashoka's court, there were Greeks still in the Ashoka's court. That that for Amazing, me just right? you know there's a guy coming from Macedonia and and you got Greeks now in India, but but that's a separate story. When he was sent, the one guy was called Iona, which they they think might have been Iona, Ionia, which could have been the area he was from in Greece, or that was his Greek name, mm. and it was converted by the Indians to be Iona. Uh, to, to be called Wild, huh? Yeah, pretty amazing. Yeah, but uh, his dad sent him to, to quell this rebellion. And I think the big strong point that came out of this is that he was a great leader of, of, of men because there was not a lot of bloodshed and they came across to him and they believed in him. That really was a, a big part of his, his uh, skill that he did throughout his 36 years as he reigned the Moran Empire. Mm. But that was one of the things that happened when he went there. And, and you know, it's... Uh, it's hard to say if you were set up to fail, but it was an extremely difficult task that he had to do at the age of 18. Yeah, absolutely. Um, nonetheless, he already was developing a, a, a pretty big reputation. Um, he also had a bit of a rough skin. Uh, you know, he, he was regarded as being not particularly worthy as a successor. His elder brother was definitely the preferred one. But he decided after his father's death that he was going to take on his brother. And he soundly defeated him. It didn't take very long for him to prove that he was the guy. Yeah, and, he threw, and then he threw his brother into a pit. Today it might seem a little bit uh, over the top, but I think <laughs> 2,000 years ago it, it was par for the course. Yeah, Susima was the eldest Susima, brother. Yeah. Yeah. So there was talk of that his, his dad had a, had 100 sons, but they're saying more than likely there's four, and he wasn't the oldest, and mm. Susima was the oldest. Mm-hmm. But uh, in the end, he had um, the other two brothers killed as well, which is what you did. You did. You just wanted to eliminate any. You didn't take any chances. No, you didn't take any <laughs> chances. And you had to. I mean, this was this. You had to lead. You know, if you look at lions, I mean, they, the male lions will always kill the the, the closest competitors. That's right. Yeah. Now, both Sri Lankan and North Indian traditions say that he was a very violent man before he encountered Buddhism, but he fell in love. With a girl called Devi, and Devi was a Buddhist. In fact, she came from the same clan as Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, and no doubt she was the one who first gave him insight into Buddhism, into pacifism, into the ideas that are that are, are prolific even today in in Buddhism. And they say that after that, he was a completely changed person. 
But often I think why they said he was massively cruel and a, a despo yeah. actually was yeah. was to show the the massive difference of the aha moment. Right. Want that to be. So you think a, l- a little bit of it might have been made up? Yeah. So he might have um, he might have been quite you know he might have been a collaborative type of leader. Uh, we don't know. We so don't know. Say killing three of your brothers. It's, uh, it seems to indicate to me a bit violent. Yeah. Possibly. <laughs> yes. Fair enough. Yeah. And he also used to do funny things like he would test the loyalty of his commanders and ministers by giving them orders to cut down every flower and fruit bearing tree in a specific area. And when they failed to carry it out, then he would cut off the heads of up to 500 people. Now, again, this mm. may be exaggerated. There's the story of one day during a stroll in a park, he and his concubines came across a, a beautiful tree and the sight put him in a really sensual mood. And the women did not enjoy caressing his famous rough skin. Sometime later, when he fell asleep, the resentful woman chopped the flowers and the branches of his namesake tree. After he woke up, he burnt 500 of his concubines to death as a punishment. Again, this number 500 sounds a bit exaggerated. But I think even 50 would be quite tough. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know he had that many concubines, but the guy was busy. Anyway, (laughs) he did eventually fall in love with this girl called Devi. This was his most important relationship. And he obviously had uh, famous children with her, which we'll get to in a moment or two. But he decided at that point that this idea, this Buddhist tradition was something he was quite interested in. And part of what makes him such a central pillar in the story of Buddhism is that he was the first one to actually send emissaries all over India. He visited famously the four major sites of Siddhartha Gautama's life, the place where he reached enlightenment, place where he was born, the place where he died. And he was clearly a convert from that point on. Mm. I mean, he would go around and talk to anyone who wanted to know about the story of Buddhism, about his own story, about how they shouldn't war with each other, Mm. how you shouldn't hurt anybody or anything. And spread the word with, with, I suppose you would call them missionaries of sorts out to China and Sri Lanka. Oh, yes. Yeah. And Thailand at the time. And he would obviously eat only certain things. He established shrines all over the place. And he adopted the idea that tolerance was also massively important. So he never forced anyone to convert to Buddhism. He allowed people to practice their own religions. And in very many places, they continued to. Um, you know, at that point, um, Hinduism and Jainism were the two th- other they were the, uh, major also religions. He, and I think, yeah, that Hinduism probably was the major. And I think Buddhism was quite small at the time. It was. Um, and he actually managed to get Buddhism not only to be accepted in Sri Lanka, but to become the majority religion in Sri Lanka, which it remains to this mm. day. I didn't know that. But this is back in 200 BC. Yeah, so it's, and, you know, Sri Lanka is still... It's still uh, affected by f- this. affected by what he it's oh, incredible it's amazing but according to the the stories and according to the the legend but also they they wrote stories on pillars etc because that's where they got most of his information from that's right these beautiful uh, columns that they built and they had these lion um heads on them they were they were sort of it was the capital of the column the top of the column was beautifully sculpted in a way that i mean you know we talk about classical architecture this was this was indian classical mm. architecture at its very best but um, on there they described uh, the, the there's an area called kalinga yes and uh, that that area was extremely important from a trading perspective and they weren't warring there wasn't anything going on but he felt that you know he's going to conquer this area and 
and they went in. It was extremely difficult. There was massive losses on both sides, but there was slaughter of over a hundred thousand inhabitants. Um, there were, there were over 150,000 more that were taken hostage and also thousands were left to die and, and from disease and famine. Uh, legend says, you know, he walked through the, the desolate at, um, the battlefield where, where all these, these, these inhabitants were lying dead and it just knocked him properly. Mm. And, and maybe as, as you'd mentioned a bit earlier, you know, with Devi and the underlying, all the, the, the scriptures that he, that he actually learned and was feeling it just all boiled to the top. And that was the big turning point for that him. That was his aha moment. That this was his, his aha Dam- Damascene, uh, conversion. Now, I just want to quickly go back to the lion capital because there are a couple of symbols there that are still hugely important in India even today. Um, if you look at it, the lions are obviously a major part of this, but there's also the wheel, which is still on the flag of India even to this day. And that wheel is called the wheel of moral law or the Dharma Chakra, which is part of what Indians still regard today as one of their foundational symbols. And I think that's really interesting because it comes from a time long before you know, Gandhi and Nehru had decided mm. to put it on the flag, but they obviously went back into history to find the original identity of this incredible emperor yeah. and, and all of the succession that he produced. And if you look through the history of India, I mean, he really stands out massively as somebody mm. that, you know, to be able to lead such a massive empire passively. Yeah. It's just testimony to, to first of all, testimony to, to the leadership skills he had. Yeah, and, and his and, deep belief in what he. I mean, this is not a time where you could get away with a philosophy of pacifism. There were a lot of people who would have immediately seen that as weakness mm. and taken the chance of overthrowing you. Yeah, and he had luckily in the beginning of his career as a, a warlord managed to kind of quell a lot mm. of that. So you had respect in that side already. He had already. respect, yeah, and I think. It's unfortunate that there wasn't a whole lot of success in his progeny. You know, usually when you get these great emperors, the very next generation is usually a bit of a dud. And that's absolutely true because. Sadly, that is. They say around 50 years or more, it was, it was, it fell, fallen apart. Fallen apart. Yeah. So he, he died in his 37th year as emperor. And that's around 232 BCE. They, they think, um, he got ill. He started using state funds to make donations to the, the Buddhist cause. Um, his ministers eventually denied him access to the treasury. He started donating his personal possessions. And on his deathbed, his only possession that he had left was the half of a fruit which he offered as his final donation to the Sangha. And such legends have encouraged ever since um, Buddhists to make generous donations in, in, their, in their last days which is something that he started the tradition of as well. But Gareth, the children, you mentioned a little bit earlier about uh, his ch- children that he had with Devi mm. and what they did. So what happened to them post um, his his death? Well, some of them went on. Obviously, there were huge fights because there was a queen who was called Tisaraka, who was the last one. And she apparently was, was very much trying to install herself. Um, and she was really the mistress in the beginning. Um, but, but his own children kind of disappear into history. We're not really aware of their contribution from that point on because there were huge, there was a, a massive amount of faction fighting between the children. Mm. And it didn't appear that there was any massive success for any of them post his death. I think that the one, um, settled in Sri Lanka, I think there could have been longevity in terms of what he believed in. And he, he his line. made quite a statement in, in, in that area, I think it was called Solon a few 
hundred years ago. Yeah, that's correct. Salon. That's what they, I think the English called it, Salon, and then it, it was renamed back to Sri Lanka. But he had plenty of queens. There was obviously the first one, which was Devi. Then there was Karuvaki. Then there was uh, Padmavati. And then this uh, Tisaraka that I told you about now. But Karuvaki is the only uh, queen who was known from his actual inscriptions, in other words, contemporaneous sources. And she is mentioned in a pillar in a place called Allahabad. And the inscription names her as the mother of a prince called Tivara. And apparently, uh, according to one theory, she was the last surviving queen. And her progeny were the ones who mostly inherited the bits and pieces of the empire that could keep together. By the way, they also say that when he died, his body, which was cremated, Burnt for seven days and seven nights. Oh, that's impressive. Well, either that or it wasn't a very good fire. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, his sons, there were a couple of those. Uh, Mahinda is the one you're talking about who went to Sri Lanka. Um, then there were a bunch of others who were much less well-known. Um, some of the sons had sons, but none of them are really mentioned in the inscriptions around the time that, that he lived. So a lot of them were, were written much, much longer much, much further down the way. So you could say, bit of hearsay, mm. not entirely clear, but there was no direct line of succession. Yeah, and I think, like I said in the beginning, it was 1837, that an English gentleman by the name of Princep that that really started unpacking this and realizing who the who is this great leader. Mm. And more and more information came out that was the only empire builder of the ancient world who at the heart of his power um, went into this passive a mutual understanding and harmonious relationships with the, the countries around him and or they weren't called countries. And the religions around him. And the religions around him. And famously, he, he also had all these rock inscriptions made, which kind of told the story of his reign and of Buddhism and of why it all mattered and what philosophies he embodied. But it, it was very much in his style of speech. So it almost feels to people, most people couldn't read, in India, so the priestly class or the warrior class would have to read these things mm. to people, and they would read them as if they were Ashoka, and that won a lot of people over. They mm. were convinced that this was the best way for a – I mean, certainly from a PR point of view, it was a real win because people thought this guy has uh, you know, the best possible ancient world mm. PR machine working for him with these rock inscriptions. All yeah, that. agreed. But like you said, you know, he had to build his reputation first before switching, and his children never had that. So I think that was maybe one of the reasons for the end of the Mauryan Empire 50 years later. Yeah, it all ended, but the uh, legacy lives on in architecture. I mentioned the stone architecture that really began during his reign. And the palaces that were built mostly out of stone then, up to then, a lot of these places were not built in any permanent um, materials. So there's a Huge legacy in the architecture. There's a legacy in symbols like the wheel that I mentioned earlier on, um, inscriptions that are still written all over the place, and coins, interestingly enough. Um, a bunch of, of coins which are shaped almost like squares with two of the four edges leveled off. So almost like a tombstone shape, mm. you would call it. And there were silver coins. Um, there were punch-marked coins. And these were considered currency for trading which was quite new in that in that part of the world at that time and the information that we get is in, it, it's incredible that the, the stories that you pulled out of it because literally 
2,200 years ago, whatever it was, it's, it's, it's so difficult to know exactly what was going on then. We just have so little information. And there have been lots and lots of Bollywood productions in the last 20 years about Ashoka the Great, which all have a little bit of truth and a little bit of mm. mythology in them and plenty of dancing. <laughs> <laughs> Ashoka the Great. Thanks for listening to this episode of Blind History. Every episode is available on the Cliff Central app, cliffcentral.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the next episode. At the age of 12, he went off to his mom's cousin, and this is where he, he was educated in the art of war and a lot of different things. He must have impressed somebody because then he was knighted in 1166, and this really set him on his way.